Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. There's nothing quite so exciting as a good adventure story. Better yet, in my opinion, is an adventure story starring women. In the lives of the famous Mancini sisters, we find not only adventure, but a whole lot more. Today I'm talking with Elizabeth Goldsmith about her new book entitled The King's Mistresses, The Liberated Lives of Marie Mancini, Princess Colonna. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. There's nothing quite so exciting as a good adventure story. Better yet, in my opinion, is an adventure story starring women. In the lives of the famous Mancini sisters, we find not only adventure, but a whole lot more. Today I'm talking with Elizabeth Goldsmith about her new book entitled The King's Mistresses, The Liberated Lives of Marie Mancini, Princess Colonna, and her sister Hortense, Duchess Mazarin. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here and to be talking with you. Um, I'm, uh, I guess I should start, I would to say that I, in saying that I was born in Ithaca, New York, upstate New York, uh, grew up there and also spent many years of my childhood and adolescence or several years living in Europe with my family, uh, my in Italy and Switzerland. Um, my father took us um, with him on his own writing and research projects, so I got hooked, I think, that way on travel and on Europe and Italy and France especially. Um, and I later went on in my education to get a PhD in French literature, and uh, I've been teaching now for about 30 years, at, uh, or over 30 years, at Boston University. Um, I live in Boston uh, with my husband and daughter, who's now grown, actually, and uh, she's, I guess, more adventurous than any of us. She's living right now in West Africa, a little village in Togo, as a Peace Corps volunteer. So that's my my brief biography. My my working biography is... uh, has been focused on um, teaching French literature to undergraduates, accompanying students on their own travels. I've done a lot of work and study abroad and taken students to different parts of Europe on our programs there. Um, and also writing um, books on um, topics related to 17th and 18th century French literature, um, the age of Versailles, Louis XIV, I've written on uh, written books on uh, the history and art of letter writing, on memoirs. I've focused a lot on women's writing and women's autobiography, uh, the history, the moments in history when women first started really um, becoming authors and uh, and uh, producing um, books themselves um, in uh, in the early modern period in Europe. So what drew you, drew you to the story that we find in The King's Mistresses? What drew me to it? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I first got interested in it, I think, by, when I was working on uh, the way that Louis XIV, the king of France, um, was um, how artists and writers of the period around 1660 were contributing to this building of a, of his myth, the legend of Louis XIV as being this great king who, you know, was 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 superhuman, and um, an important mo- moment in that the 
the romance that he had uh, with Mary Mancini, uh, when which was his youthful, and um, and she that romance had to be broken up. Uh, when it was time for him to marry uh, the the princess of Spain, make a, mo- a royal marriage, and so I got interested in the story of Marie Mancini and and how people thought of her in conjunction with this early romance of the king, which led me to read her own memoir, and I came to realize that uh, that there was so much more to her life than this one moment, a youthful moment that people knew the most about. Also, this is a dual biography. You talk about Marie as well as her sister. What led you to settle on writing a book of both of them rather than just focusing on one or the other? Well, both of them, Marie wrote her memoirs. Her sister had written her memoir even before that. And they also, so I started thinking about them in terms as memoir writers, as early memoir writers. And I wrote something about them as having written and published two of the first memoirs written openly and openly signed by women and published in the 17th century. But then I also decided the more I worked on them as writers, the more I realized that what was what really the story that really had to be told and that I wanted to tell was the adventure of their lives, which they only told in part at the moment they wrote their memoirs because they wrote them when they were still fairly young. Um, and so I I thought and their lives are very much intertwined because they were uh, they both were women who ran away from their husbands and ran away together for a few years. They were on the road together, and they became known as these uh, really um, adventurous and daring uh, sisters. The fact that they were sisters was important for everyone in, who observed them. Um, and they were part of a family that was um, famous in France as a group, too, um, because they were nieces of Cardinal Mazarin, who was a very powerful person at the court of France and who had brought his whole family, including the two sisters, to join him uh, in France when he felt it was time to uh, surround himself with all of the family that he had left behind in Italy. So they, they, sorry. Sorry, yes. Yeah, so they yeah. came, they sort of were a package. They, they started to be a package in my own mind. And they, the two sisters, their own, the way they, interacted with each other and the way they helped each other and encouraged each other and even goaded each other on, especially in the beginning when they both made the very risky step of deciding to run away from their wealthy and privileged lives and set out on their own. Um, I thought that it was interesting to treat them together. Right. Um, by way of an introduction to them, can you talk a little bit more about their childhood and how they came from Italy to the French court? Yes. Um, so their uncle was Jules Mazarin, uh, who had come, who had gone himself to France uh, on the invitation of Cardinal Richelieu, uh, who was minister to Louis the Thirteenth. And he, seeing this uh, this promising uh, cardinal in uh, in Italy, brought him to uh, work with him and assist him at the court of Louis the Thirteenth. Um, Mazarin rose. Uh, his power rose very quickly too, and he became the principal minister to Louis the Thirteenth after Richelieu, and then to Anne of Austria, who was Louis the Thirteenth's widow and later was regent, queen of France, 
during the youth of Louis XIV. So Mazarin was really the most powerful political figure, along with Queen Anne, um, for a number of years. And he, uh, until Louis XIV was old enough to start um, ruling as king independently. So Mazarin decided to, um, once he felt that his own position in France was established, uh, uh, well enough established, he... um, decided to that he wanted to leave a legacy in France uh, in the form of a family and place his own nieces and nephews in good marriages and um and he brought his two sisters and their many children to um to Paris so the two sisters um uh, the Marie and Hortense were two of uh, eight siblings who eventually had uh, made their way to Paris uh, at the invitation of their uncle. And they arrived in Paris. The two of them arrived in Paris with their mother when Marie was 14 and Hortense was seven. And they, uh, so they essentially grew up in Paris, but they, in France, but they were Italian, born in Italy. Uh, and they grew up at the court and were very close to the young King Louis the Fourteenth, and eventually uh, Marie um, had a, an affair with him, a romance, which was uh, this defining moment in his in his life and in hers. So, how and why were they driven apart? Well, the, it was a teenage romance, I guess you could say, which wasn't discouraged at first by either Marie's uncle or uh, Louis's mother. In fact, it was kind of encouraged, and everyone thought that. Marie had a nice cultivating influence um, on the king, uh, introduced him to Italian literature and music, and uh, uh, and everyone thought this was good. It was he was he was uh, eighteen, and she was. It was just the right moment for him to start becoming a little bit more um, uh, gallant and cultivated. So this was how the whole romance was approached until the two of them started making it clear that they thought they wanted to marry. And that was just not possible. Even though Mazarin was extremely ambitious, he knew that politically it would not be possible uh, for him to arrange a marriage of one of his nieces to the king. The kings have to marry queens, preferably foreign queens, because their royal marriages help with treaties. And and the the idea was to marry Louis XIV to the Spanish princess. So... The relationship between Marie and Louis was was put to an end rather brutally uh, when um, the two and Louis had had uh, made it clear that they wanted to be married. Marie was shipped off to a fortress on the coast, the Atlantic coast, and essentially imprisoned there for a few months while the marriage for Louis and the Spanish uh, princess was orchestrated. And once he was married and brought back to Paris, she was brought back to Paris as well. And uh, Mazarin arranged for her to be married to an Italian prince, which would um, essentially get her out of the city as well. So she married the Italian prince and they went to Rome and things went fairly well for a while, right? Yeah, they did. I mean, she, it was that marriage, Marie's marriage with this Prince Lorenzo Onofrio Colonna, who was a very, uh, he was one of the, probably the wealthy, from the wealthiest and most prestigious family 
of um, Roman nobility. Um, so it was a good marriage, and the two, I mean, a good marriage politically, and, um, and the two of them actually seemed to get along pretty well in the beginning. Marie was, Marie, Lorenzo was a, uh, a great patron of the arts. He wanted his family to be kind of at the center of theater and music and art in Rome, and um, Marie helped with that, and they built a, a fabulous art collection together, and she uh, sponsored theater and opera in their palazzo, and also part, they both participated in a lot of um, spectacles in the city, uh, and he sort of showed her off, and for the first few years of their marriage, it was um, it was kind of a nice collaboration between two people who enjoyed celebrity and didn't even mind um, sort of shock, shocking the more conservative society of Rome compared to Paris um, that that Marie had joined. So the first part of the marriage, yes, was okay. Um, Marie's sister, on the other hand, um, who was also Hortense, who was whose marriage was organized uh, was orchestrated by Mazarin um, in a, at around the same time that Marie's was. She was married off to a religious fanatic. It wasn't a good marriage from the beginning, uh, and she was ready to leave um, within probably months of the of their marriage. And she ended up toughing it out for about four years before she started trying to make legal arrangements to be allowed to separate from her husband. And what were those four years like? Because he was taking her into the country against her wishes and correct yes yeah. he, he was he was uh, almost child de la meilleure he she and and he both inherited Mazarin's fortune and they um they seemed to be kind of set up pretty well in paris but um i mean for to the outside world you might a lot of people thought this might be a marriage that would work however um uh, he was crazy, and he was uh, completely intolerant of any kind of uh, social life that his wife might want. He hated the arts. He hated everything she loved. She built a theater in the in the the uh, their residence, the Mazarin residence. He had it destroyed. Uh, he was very jealous. He didn't want her to have any contact with anyone else. And then he would take her with him, drag her along with him whenever he would travel to the provinces to any of his provincial estates. She never wanted to go with him, and he'd just sort of bring her back to Paris when it was time for her to have a baby. She had four pregnancies in, I think, four years, and um, and and just hated every minute that she had to spend with him. So uh, it was a very, he was a very possessive and dangerously jealous person who basically would have loved to keep her locked up like Rapunzel in a in a fairy tale castle if he could. So how did she wind up escaping him? She with the help of her brother who always was kind of uh, uh, on the on the fringes of his sister's adventures as the years went by, um she secretly arranged to run away one night with her her, her brother, as I said, helped her orchestrate this, and uh, and she went off with her servant and escorted by a friend of her brother's 
uh, in the middle of the night, they they escaped Paris in a carriage and headed for the um, the border with Italy. Um, and uh, by the time her husband knew what had happened, she was already far enough away so that she was able to keep ahead of his uh, of his uh, agents uh, long enough to be able to make it into Italy and and uh, eventually join her sister there. It comes up several times because there are a couple of mistakes made throughout the book, and I thought it was really fascinating that each time the women themselves commented and seemed to kind of marvel on how quickly they were revealed when they dressed as men and how quickly people twigged onto the fact that they were women uh, and that things didn't pan out as they did in novels, which I thought was <laughs> yeah. a really interesting point because we read this now and it seems so modern and these people are adventurers and they're escaping. And at the time, there wasn't really a real-life precedent for that. They were they were just following what they'd seen in novels and were trying yeah. to put that in practice. I thought that was a really interesting element of the book. Yeah, that's true. She did, Hortense did escape in in men's clothes. She and her uh and her the servant, the female servant who went with her both dressed in men's clothes when they left Paris. But right, at the same time, um they no one really thought they were men. So it's interesting how yeah, and and that happened again later when Marie and Hortense decided to leave Rome together. They they and their servants at one point were dressed in men's clothes and they both say in their memoirs as you say that well, nobody really believed this, but but it seems important still. It was still important to them, and somehow um, it was still, in some ways, um, useful for them that they were in men's clothes. So you know, men's clothes can be useful just, for example, when you're you want to ride horseback, or or even in in terms of the way other people might treat you. So even if you are wearing men's clothes as a woman who is still clearly a woman to anyone observing you. It seems to be, it seems to have been assigned to anyone who's observing you that you are not to be treated like an aristocratic woman on the road. <laughs> so it's a kind of transparent disguise that everybody sort of goes along with and it adds to the adventure and exotic, you know, excitement of, of, and riskiness of what they were doing. Yeah. You also point out in the book that this was an age in which when they women women when they traveled, women were not even really meant to be seen. They had like heavy heavy curtains in their mm-hmm. um carriages and stuff. What was it like for women like what traveling did women do at this time? How revolutionary was what these sisters were doing? This was a time when there were uh new ways of travel for both men and women. And women though could take advantage of it in ways that were quite exciting. Now that the the uh the reference you make to the uh, the drawn curtains over carriages um uh that refers to i think a a, a comment that uh, that that Marie makes about traveling in Spain compared to France and she feels rather constricted when she gets to Spain and she has to always have because she likes to be able to see out and ha- and doesn't mind having people see her but um the traditional women did travel uh, they had traveled of course before this period um but say aristocratic women as these women were um would travel typically um if they did travel it would have to be in a family carriage one that was quite clearly marked typically you would know this the countess of so and so is going through this city and you would know just by the way the carriage looked who it was uh, how important they were and um new carriages were designed to be a little bit more open with glass windows even the more elegant ones but it wasn't possible for women to travel anonymously now 
what you do have happening in this period, and Marie and Hortense learned to take advantage of it, is the development of a whole new system of roads in France and in England, um, which were connected with the new uh, postal system. You have a regular system of postal delivery. And, uh, and carriages, stagecoaches, would deliver mail, and they would also deliver people. If a person showed up at a postal office, they could get a ride in a carriage along with the mail somewhere on a regular schedule. They could also rent a horse, um, they could, which they could then leave off and sort of travel by relay across pretty long distances, knowing in advance what the routes were and what the different schedules were for the, the vehicles that they could take. And um, Marie and Hortense learned to, to use this system, and this was quite new. And they they refer to it in their memoirs almost as though, and letters, almost as though they're kind of letting people know that this is a possibility, and if you want to be a runaway woman like I am, <laughs> this is something you can do um, and uh, and more easily evade anyone who is trying to pursue you or track the way you're traveling. So, um, so they learned how to travel using these new, this new kind of infrastructure that was being developed around the postal system. Uh, and they also were probably in all likelihood using new maps that were being developed in conjunction with the postal system, um, so that they could see, you could look at a map of France in this period and for the first time, not see not just mountains and rivers, but you'd see roads. This is the beginning of, of, um, the, this is the first age of road maps. So landscapes, when you look at maps, start to look different starting in the mid-17th century. You see a country crisscrossed by roads, um, and you think of how to travel in new ways, and, uh, and they, uh, they definitely did that uh, and used it to their own advantage. So interesting. We're going to come back to the traveling in a second, but I really quickly, um, it's easy to kind of try to want to conflate these two women as just two women who ran away from their husbands, uh, but their situations were quite different. Can you kind of explain the differences in each situation for us? Yes. Um, well, Hortense, who was the first to run away uh, and the younger of the two, uh, she was running away from a husband who was really, um, uh, who was preventing her from um, accessing any of her uh, family money and also from doing any kind of, from leading any kind of a life that she had that she wanted to lead. As I said earlier, she she wasn't allowed to to leave the. The, he didn't want her to leave the, the residence, and he really persecuted her. Everyone, he had been doing that from the beginning, and everyone sympathized with her situation. Um, so she was leaving, she was running away from a person who was essentially an abusive husband, and um, her ambition, I guess, as, after she ran away, her ambitions ended up developing differently from Marie's, too. Marie, when she left, having left a marriage that for many years was seen by everyone, including herself, as having been a fairly successful one, um, things had turned uh, more recently in her marriage against her. And she started, after having given birth to three sons, she decided that she didn't want to get pregnant again. Her older sister had died in, one of her sisters had died in childbirth, and she proposed to her husband that they'd be separated or have a separation of beds, as they called it back then. Her husband 
didn't, could not tolerate that at all. In the meantime, he had also started keeping mistresses, and the marriage had not been going as well. And um, he uh, started to be encouraged by friends of his um, to think about possibly um, getting another wife. And the way he was, he might think about doing that would be to just do away with her. Um, and although there's no way of really proving that he was plotting to kill her, there she was afraid that he was. And other people talked about how um, he had been advised to do away with her. So she um, became very frightened, and um, she was sick for many months before she finally did run away, and she decided that she had to leave uh, Rome, um, and she went, she left Rome with her sister at that point. So there, the circumstances were somewhat different. Okay. Um, I want to transition over and talk about their memoirs a little bit, because Hor- um, Hortense published a memoir at a time when, as you say, quote, to commit one's private life to print was by definition a major transgression for a woman. Uh-huh. So why did she decide to write the memoir and also to sign it? And how did it help or hinder her case in her separation from her husband? Yeah, it, um, she was... At the time that she wrote her memoir, she was living at the court of the Duke of Savoy, who was protecting her and uh, was probably in love with her, as as she ended up having many many of her protectors were along the way. Um, And she was also a friend of a writer um, who was living at the court. Um, And she uh, was involved in a series of ongoing uh, legal disputes with her husband over her dowry, over their considerable wealth, over her right to live apart from him and have some access to that wealth. Um, And she was inspired to write her story as she saw it and describe what her marriage had been for a public that she knew was already really curious about the whole scandalous you know, the whole scandalous affair of her having left her husband and then living independently. So she writes this memoir sort of apologetically at first, the way a lot of women tended to write their memoirs at this time. They would start out kind of apologizing for having even going public with their lives at all. Um, but as she gets into it, she clearly, is, you know, takes this kind of um, almost, you know, she argues for her case. And you you get a sense that the way she's writing it, she knows or expects or hopes that this will be used in some way in her favor as a document um, that that could that could help her in her legal battle with her husband. So and it what it did get used that way later, much later, um, when her husband uh, decided finally to try to force her to come back from England and. They had a long, uh, essentially divorce uh, case that was that was publicized, and her memoir was used as evidence on her side. So that was, you know, it was a memoir that she published and put her own name to, um, partly in self-defense and also just kind of asserting her own right to get involved in this celebrity that she had that had 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 come to her because of her own decisions and wanting to try to affect um, and influence public opinion that was, and the legal opinion that was being formed around her case. Um, now, Marie later ended up, 
she wrote her memoir, uh, her memoirs a couple of years later. She at the time was living in Madrid and um, inspired by the popularity of Hortense's memoir because it was published and circulated and a lot of people read it. Um, somebody else wrote a memoir and claiming to be Marie and published it and said, and it was quite sensational and it came into Marie's hands in Madrid and she was furious that um, that uh, that someone else had written a memoir and signed it as though it were her, and and so then she said she would write. She decided she would write her own memoir, which she gave a title to that was very clear. She called it "The Truth in Its Own Light," and uh, and she said, you know, in the first page, no, I I read this memoir that someone else said was was by me, and it isn't, and now this is the true one, and uh, you know, I'm outraged, but. But again, in the in the beginning, she's emphasizing that she was thrust into this position, and she decided that she would, like her sister had, um, take a stand and try to control the public image of herself that was getting circulated, you know, beyond her own control. This is an, this is astonishingly modern behavior for a woman of the time, right? To try to control or manipulate your public image. Well, yeah. I mean, you could say, in a way, they. I mean, you can definitely talk about spin, you know, and um, and it's also um, really they're writing these memoirs right at the time when uh, when news gazettes are where you might say the invention of the newspaper is is happening right in this period because you get the first printed news gazettes, international news gazettes that are circulating not only news about wars and political situations but also just um, news about famous people and what they're doing and where they're going and who's leaving what marriage and what's happening. And you start and you see there are these news gazettes that publish information about um, the two uh, Mancini sisters once they're, once they're running away. And so they're in the news and they know that people are writing letters like crazy about them and they're writing their own letters so publishing a memoir is definitely definitely automatically becomes a part of all that, and they're trying to to spin it so that it can work in their own favor. The sisters actually spent quite a lot of time apart uh, beyond a point after they ran away together. They kind of separated. Uh, how did they continue to influence one another though they weren't together? Well, I, I wish we could say, I wish I knew that you know knew, had a full answer to that. I mean, we do know that. They did stay in touch, and um, although we don't have a lot of the letters of um, Hortense, we have lots of letters that were written by Marie and also by different people uh, who wrote about them. So we know that they had, they were aware of each other's, what they they knew what each other was doing, and they wrote to each other. They stayed in touch with each other through other people, um, and. Although they didn't visit each other, as far as anyone knows, after uh, a certain point fairly early on in their travels, they did stay together for a couple of years in their travels. But um, but after that, they went very different directions. Marie went to Spain, and Hortense ended up in in, in England. Um, but they knew they they knew uh, they they were in touch with each other, and they sent messages to each messages to each other. And their family was all involved in these letter conversations. Um, about what they were doing and how they could be supported or how they could be persuaded to come back to their husbands or how their husbands could be persuaded to let them go. 
um, that just kept on going, you know, for their whole lives. This is a bit of a random side note, but one of my favorite details of the book was how whenever the sisters, particularly Hortense, when they embarked on a journey, particularly one that they did not want to undertake, uh, they would just drag it out forever. And the, the extraordinarily linked the journey would become a source of gossip and was seen the journey itself was seen as an act of defiance because of this. Can you talk yeah. about this? Because this happened a couple of times, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think you're right about it being particularly Hortense, but also Marie, yeah, mm-hmm. because she would, she, she was, she never tired of trying to negotiate with her husband, even though, and her husband sort of allowed that to, allowed that pretense to go on for a long time. Well, I think, um, yeah, Hortense was, all, she's much more defiant, openly defiant, I think, partly because her husband was complete, he would never negotiate anything. So he was always just trying to get the king to allow him to kidnap her and bring her back, basically or trying to get his own men who he hired to kidnap her, and they would show up in a town, and then other men who worked for the uh, chief uh, nobleman of the town would say, no, you can't kidnap her. So there was this con- there was a kind of, there were many instances where she barely escaped his, his, uh, his, the clutches of his agent. Um, and so she, I think, um, I think that she even may have enjoyed kind of going as far as she could to taunt him because she just got some enjoyment out of seeing him be frustrated in his efforts to get her back. Um, and she saw how far she could go and she would get, she played power games. She would get people to help her, powerful people who she knew um, he would not be able to, you know, he would, he would, he was not powerful enough himself to be able to go against what they would, the positions that they would take to protect her. Marie's situation was a little different, mainly because her husband played this kind of cat and mouse game with her, and he would sort of let her. He knew exactly where she was often um, on her travels because he had spies with her. He would send her servants who he would enlist as his spies. He would set, arrange to give her money or even arrange a, for her to get a carriage that he thought was kind of respectable enough for her to travel in. And then all of a sudden, he would find somebody in the city where she was to agree to throw her into prison. You know, So he, was, he toyed with her for a long time and promised to send her her sons and then took away that promise. It was a real kind of um, stalking game almost that he, that he played with her for years. Um, but she learned to use travel in ways that might benefit her, especially since she, I think, was very sensitive to the fact that almost anyone who might be supposedly escorting her might be spying for her husband. So she learned to maybe be unpredictable in her travels, go somewhere where it didn't really make any sense for her to go because that would be something that her husband couldn't foresee. So so people have often said about her that she was kind of people have even suggested maybe she was kind of manic or she was she was um this unpredictability or her inconsistency in her behavior with respect to her husband over years. There's some kind of temperamental defect in her personality. Um and I see it more as a strategy. She learned how unpredictability could be useful to her. And um, and protect her from people who are constantly spying on her. Such a fascinating collection of personalities. 
Yeah, they're all very powerful personalities, strong personalities. So as you see it, what is the legacy of Marie and Hortense? Um, well, <laughs> that's interesting. I think their legacy immediately in their own time was to, well, they, they, they attracted condemnation and they attracted admiration. One, one of their legacies was to show women how they could maneuver and how they could get around and have adventurous lives independently of their husbands. People, even people who just kind of gossiped about them by, through their fascination, you know, they, they learned, um, how it would, it might be possible to, um, risk a life away from everything that you were told you, you absolutely couldn't escape if you were from this kind of family and with, that, where certain expectations were made of you and there was no, normally no, notion that you could escape it. So they were they became examples immediately of women who had been able to escape. Um, it's interesting how later that legacy, I think there was more enthusiasm for them in some ways um, in their own time than there was a little later. And then in, you know, in sort of the romantic era, in the, in the age where domesticity became really um, glorified, say, the end of the 18th, from the end of the 18th century, up until our era, often people condemn them for th- for reasons that no one ever condemned them in their own lifetime. For example, people say, how could they now? People, We all say, how could they leave their children? They left these young children. In, her, in their own day, no one ever condemned them for that. That was, that was not, it was not, you know, the idea that an aristocratic woman especially would have some real obligation to bring up their own children wasn't really, wasn't, wasn't a factor. So they produced the children for the family, and then the children were brought up by other people, and the um, and their their own children never seemed to bear them any grudge for having left them. Marie ended up having a good relationship with her son's long correspondences with them throughout her life. So, um, and you know, so it, it gets their, their story gets told in different ways. And now, when I first started working on them, and I would, would talk, especially in France with people who knew Marie's story or knew Hortense's story too, um, they, they, and they would know more about the fact that she had to give up her romance with Louis XIV and then she went off. Um, people would say, oh, oh yes, poor Marie, oh, that poor woman. And, <laughs> and so people tend to see them as victims because they were persecuted and pursued. Um, but, uh, but I see them, and I hope that this book shows them in this light, I see them as incredible adventuresses and determined to to um, to lead these exciting lives that they for which they left a lot just in order to be independent and and not regretting their choices really in any way, even though they might Hortense especially might pay lip service to the idea that she had given up her reputation, but I think she actually embraced this risky and libertine life that she chose. So the legacy changes, you know, it's always, it just depends on when when people are reading the story and what their own uh, preconceptions are. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about The King's Mistresses. I know it's a horrible question to ask an author when the book has only just come out, but do you have any idea what you'll be writing about next? Well, um, as you can tell probably by my responses, it's hard for me to get away from this, these people. <laughs> so I, I'm still sort of in their thrall, I think. And, and 
one of the challenges of writing the book actually was figuring out which tangents to follow and which ones not just to keep the story all intact and not go off in too many different directions because these two are the are I think the most interesting of the of the sisters but there are other sisters in this family and other relatives of theirs in this extended family that would make really good stories so one possibility would be to write the story of maybe their older sister Olamp or the one of the other sisters, Malyan, who both led really interesting lives and somewhat, and also scandalous lives. I thought of that. Um, and, and also, I love working in archives. I love discovering letters and, and finding out more about the lives of these people. So there are, I know there are a lot of other untold stories about other women of their time that, that are still there. And I've, I'm kind of, I've kind of started to go down some of those paths, too. Either that or something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that I would have to, I would have to think about more. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. I've been talking today with Elizabeth Goldsmith about her book, The King's Mistresses, The Liberated Lives of Marie Mancini, Princess Colonna, and her sister Hortense, Duchess Mazarin, which is now out in paperback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>